www.magicfinancing.com. Good afternoon and welcome to the council. I'm your host, Charlie Pacello. Folks, boy, do we have a fantastic, fantastic show for you today. It uh, is just an honor and a privilege to be able to, to, to introduce my guest to you here in just a few moments. But before we do that, I, I want to let you know that we are broadcasting live here on KUHS TV Radio Denver, The Stream. Uh, we're broadcasting here in beautiful Denver, Colorado. It's a beautiful day here, and uh, our streaming, the KUHS, is the number three in the nation. We've got some of the best programming in the world, some of the best DJs, some of the best personalities, people that are trying to give you their very best in uh, entertainment, information, education, uh, how to help your health, all kinds of things. We've got some of the most talented TV radio hosts, personalities, professionals, and programming you're going to find anywhere on the Internet or even uh -huh. traditional media. Our reach continues to grow beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations. And our audience is growing exponentially as we're being listened to by people from all over the world. Uh, over 40 countries tune into the council every week. And our mission is to bring quality programming that reflects the diversity of our staff and to have honest, grounded, authentic conversations about the many issues we confront as a society. We strive to bring our city, our nation, and our world together. Uh, by providing a platform where we celebrate our uniqueness, our commonality, and our humanity. Folks, today we're talking um, about remembering their sacrifices. And uh, this show is inspired from a book called Ghost Soldiers. Uh, it's an epic account of World War II's greatest rescue mission. And it was something that I didn't know about. It was something that in my many years in the military and at the Air Force Academy and other places, I wasn't aware of some of the stories, the personal stories, the individual stories of some of the people who served in our military and uh, ex experienced some of the most extreme deprivation and pain and suffering as POWs in, uh, in that conflict. And this book particularly talks about uh, the POWs in uh, in the Philippines. Uh, after the Bataan Death March, uh, thousands and thousands of American soldiers and Filipino soldiers uh, suffered tremendously. And uh, I didn't understand the depth of their sacrifice and, and the starvation and the things that they had to go through. And I was weeping uh, tears when I was, as I was going through this book. And I just want to share with you a couple parts before we get into it to have you an idea of some of the things that our men and women have gone through in order to give us our country, our freedoms, our liberties that we so cherish and so often take for granted. There were times in, uh, in during these prison war camps where the Japanese had kept uh, a lot of the prisoners in extraordinary deprivation. And at one point, uh, the men had no inkling what the Japanese were going to do to them, and their health was deteriorating fast, and many of their shrapnel wounds had become gangrenous. And the doctors, lacking surgical instruments, were forced to perform amputations by razor blade. And in lieu of anesthetics, four or five men would pin the screaming patient to the concrete slab as the doctors methodically cut the limb away. And then their situation got worse, and they asked uh, some of the, you know, if some of the prisoners could go to some of the ho 
hospitals and receive better care. And uh, instead of transporting some of these men, uh, they rep uh, transported 16 into a remote spot in the jungle where they were told, crawl, um, told to crawl off the truck. And the guards then drew their swords and steadily working down the line, they decapitated all 15 Americans. They were buried together and were found after the war. And I read these stories. I was appalled and shocked and uh, so humbled by their sacrifice. And then when you see when the Rangers, it was the, the Army Rangers led by Colonel Mucci who comes in to rescue these men and, and Captain Prince. When they found him after four years of prison, uh, being prisoners of war, uh, this is what they said, that even though they had prepared themselves for the worst, the Rangers were truly appalled at the grotesque conditions of many of the prisoners. They got a vivid, ghastly parade of amputees, consumptives, men with peg legs, men without hair or teeth, men with the elephantine appendages and scrotum in, scrotums indicative of wet Burberry. One ranger described them as sickly old birds that just had been plucked. The half-naked prisoners were dull-eyed and louse-infested, and they seemed old beyond their years. Most were barefoot or hobbled around on homemade sandals fashioned from strings and slats of cardboard. The, the army rangers shook their heads in disbelief and cried at the sight of these emaciated countrymen so far down the starvation trail. Folks, we got to remember these stories. We have to remember so we don't fall into the same traps again and forget what our people in our past have sacrificed so immensely for, for our, our freedoms and, and, and our lifestyle, the things that we cherish. And, and, uh, and we must remember who they are and what they sacrificed. Today, I'm so proud and so honored and so grateful to introduce to you Thayer Green. He is a World War II veteran, 95 years young. He's a concentration camp liberator uh, in Germany, and uh, he is also a union analyst. Thayer, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Welcome. Welcome to the council. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> well, it is an honor, sir. Could you please share your life, uh, just a, a, your brief history of your life, where you were born, um, and, and how you got into, uh, into the military? Okay. Uh, I was born in Hartford, Connecticut in um, March 20th, 1926 which is quite a while ago. Uh, I wake up in the morning always surprised that I'm still breathing at my present age and uh, that life is still uh, an adventure, including this program, I might add. I've got more invitations to share my war experience over the age of 90 than I ever got earlier. So one of the things I can 
promise your audiences if you can hold on long enough you will become famous <laughs> um, yes sir yes sir now i was uh my father was minister uh congregational minister of the congregational church in the town of new britain which is not far from hartford and uh, i uh, you know went through the 1930s uh, in a privileged uh, way compared to so many that suffered their families suffered through the depression but my mother uh, quite fortunately inherited a good deal of money so we ate well uh, both of my parents were extremely busy out in the world and um, I had the sense that uh, life was secure and dinner would be delicious <laughs> and uh, uh, we had a cook and a maid if you can believe it uh, and uh, so uh, I had people to pick up after me when I was a small kid and uh, I got a lot of uh, attention and love from a variety of caring people and uh, so there's no complaint that I can come up with about my origins and my early development and that makes a big difference uh, and I'm I'll tell something of my career in a minute but I'm a practicing uh, analytic psychotherapy and uh, I'm still uh, at age 95 working with five or six uh, clients and occasionally supervising some of my younger colleagues so I haven't stopped working and I have found that my love of what I do uh, has probably kept me alive along with uh, a beautiful wife that has been my partner for almost 70 years so that's roughly my background um, I went to public school in New Britain Connecticut and then I went to a small private school that gave me an excellent education mm. Then when I was in uh, sixth grade, no, wait a minute, ninth grade, uh, I went to Phillips Exeter Academy, mm -hmm. which is a prep school in Exeter, New Hampshire. And uh, I got a superb, uh, tough education there uh, and instead of 27 students in 
the private school in the country, I was with 650 uh, young men at Exeter where we had to work really hard on our studies, but I also got to uh, play uh, lots of sports and uh, make uh, some good friends. It was a good exposure to a masculine environment. Mm. And for me, really a preparation for what lay beyond 12th grade. Right. And, and, and uh, there, you, I mean, you're part of the greatest generation. I mean, that's what we, we and, there, and the greatest generation has this, we, we have uh, come to understand and recognize that you had this immense strength, this immense character, this immense ability to overcome the odds, overcome the fears that enveloped your world. I mean, you had to face the Great Depression. And then on top of that, you went through World War II. What was it that about your generation that made you so strong when you look back on it? Well, that's a very fair question. Uh, I, it's a hard one for me to answer because you're talking about a young man who, uh, when he was drafted into the service in 1944 was only 18 years old mm -hmm. so I didn't have very much time to reflect in maturity on the state of the world or the country or uh, what the hell we were doing uh, over in Japan and Germany, but <coughs> there was a very different mood in the country back then in our fight against Hitler and the Japanese than exists in this country now. I am appalled, frankly, by uh, how divided, how uh, nasty we can be with each other mm -hmm. here. And uh, it, uh, uh, I have to deal with it, but uh, I, uh, I don't like it. And I can hardly wait for next Tuesday to express my political passion, <laughs> as I'm sure many other people feel, uh, to live this long and then to listen to some of the uh, nasty, cheap, uh, criminal uh, behavior and attitudes that are going on in this country makes me sick and angry. Yeah. And I'm sure I have company in that, but it is a free country and I fought for it and I'm glad I did. I love America. I love the United States and uh, I, I would have not gladly, but uh, I would have accepted 
if my fate was to die in the Second World War, because it was a good war, a necessary war, and uh, the uh, the day that uh, our unit encountered uh, a concentration camp uh, in Wiesbaden, Germany, uh, and I saw uh, 150 corpses or so, and uh, human beings uh, breathing their last uh, breaths uh, before they starve to death. I I saw a level of horror that uh, has changed my life for sure. And uh, I uh, wrote my parents uh, that evening and said, because, you know, my father was a congregational minister in uh, the congregational church in New England, and I was raised on the Christian message yeah. of love and compassion and care. And here I was in an environment of death and starvation and cruelty, mm -hmm. and uh, I had to, uh, I had to confront it. I had to deal with it, mm -hmm. which, which I did, uh, and in a rather matter-of-fact way. You know, it's always been my philosophy: wherever I am and whatever I'm doing, it is what it is. Uh, and uh, don't pretend it's something it is not. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wrote home to my parents that night and said, I hate what I'm doing, but I have to be here and do what I'm doing. And my job was to kill Germans, whom I didn't even know. And, you know, one of my experiences of uh, combat uh, from the start uh, when I first was under fire with German machine guns and rifles and their 88 gun, which was really scary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, uh, I realized these people are trying to kill me and they don't even know me. <laughs> <laughs> and this was a new uh, exposure for me. But it's something that all of you who have served and been in combat have experienced. It's so damn impersonal. Mm -hmm. uh, you're ducking machine gun bullets and shells, uh, but the people pulling the triggers don't even know who you are. Uh, and how the hell do we get in such a dilemma? Uh, why can't we get beyond it? It's a struggle I'm still uh, dealing with uh, regularly. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm my uh, present vocation, which I 
been doing for more than 50 years is as an analytic psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. So I work uh, with men and women who are in one or another kind of fear, a fear or uh, a, a struggling and painful condition in their lives. And uh, uh, I got that from my own experience in realizing uh, how screwed up the world is. <laughs> and that's why I think, Thayer, there's so much that we can learn. And we need to learn from you and your generation and those that are still living so that we can remember what unites us. We can remember what brings us together. We can remember the sacrifices that you've made so that we can have the opportunity to vote the coming next Tuesday who we want to vote for. Whether I mean, it's a privilege to be able to vote, whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, whatever it is, you know, take the time and, and invest a little bit of your heart and soul into the process because of men like you and my grandfather who fought in World War II uh, and others who have served <clears throat> to give us that opportunity. Um, my grandfather, uh, he fought in World War II. He was with Patton in North Africa. Uh, he died uh, before I got a chance to talk to him about his experiences and what that meant to him. Uh, we never got to talk about it. And those memories, those lessons, those experiences that, of wisdom, uh, they died with him. And I believe it is so vitally important to remember and to honor and to celebrate and to mourn all that your generation sacrificed for us to give us the freedoms we have. And uh, we need to record these stories so we don't fall asleep again to the evil that exists and can arise if we don't remain vigilant. You know, Thayer, you've seen evil with your own eyes. I would be with great humility, sir. Could you please take us down the memories uh, that you experienced uh, from uh, World War II that you carried with you in your soul? I've got, uh, I've got quite a few rather juicy uh, uh, experiences in my exposure to uh, combat of various kinds, and I'd be glad to share them if this is the time to do it. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Um, then I was uh, drafted in, at the age of 18, uh, and my plan had been to see if I could uh, find a way to get into military government because I knew we were going to beat the Germans and I, uh, uh, you know, I was a very smart student and I had a lot of educational exposure. So I was hoping that I could uh, somehow when I was drafted, go into military government. Uh, I went to Fort Devens to get uh, enrolled in the army. And 
to get assigned to a unit. And uh, I waited in line and uh, finally sat down facing a, a very bored corporal uh, <laughs> who uh, was interviewing one of us after another. And uh, so I, I gave as brief but persuasive a uh, uh, encouragement for him to place me in military government. And he obviously wasn't terribly impressed. And uh, he finally uh, stopped me and said, you got flat feet, bud? And uh, I said, no, I don't have flat feet. And he pulled out a stamp and stamped my application and my placement in the infantry. And so I became an infantry uh, combat soldier by his decision. Uh, and I, in, in my present life and for many years, I've had a kind of mixed reaction to his decision. On the one hand, how dare he not take me seriously? <laughs> but on the other hand, since I survived and I wouldn't uh, not want to have had all the experiences I've had, uh, I'm, I'm reluctantly grateful to him for putting me in combat infantry. And um, my war career started when I was shipped to uh, a camp south of Boston in Long Island, which was a departure camp for Europe. And uh, uh, when I, I sat there for a week or more, uh, and then they put us on uh, a, an ocean liner, the USS America, which had been transformed into a troop ship. And um, they could take 7,500 uh, young soldiers uh, wherever uh, they chose. And uh, so I was put on the USS America, which they changed the name to the US West Point. Mm. And so I've been to West Point uh, indirectly. <laughs> and uh, we set out across the Atlantic and we zigged for seven minutes and then we zagged for seven minutes. That was apparently the safe amount of time you could go in one direction in this beautiful ocean liner before you could become an attractive target to a German submarine. And so we went down south of Bermuda, which 
it would not seem to be a trip to Europe, but we then headed north uh, to uh, north of Ireland. And uh, uh, during that period, uh, nothing particularly interesting or exciting occurred, but it did give me a chance to talk with my fellow draftees and we could all talk about our anxiety as to where we were going to be placed. Then, uh, while we were, uh, I was down in the forward hold of this ship with 400 other guys and uh, uh, we, it was not uh, uh, the most comfortable uh, bedding, but we were stacked. I can't remember whether whether we're three high or four high in this hold in bunks that were about, uh, I don't know, three feet apart, mm -hmm. four and a half feet apart, something like that. You just, you, you crawled up to your bunk and you slid into it. <laughs> and uh, so that's what I did uh, for several nights as we crossed the Atlantic. And um, uh, then when we got to Northern Ireland, uh, and of course I didn't know what the hell was going on, uh, all of a sudden there were these major explosions that shook uh, this passenger ship and uh, at the same time, the ship started to tip, and it tipped pretty radically from anything we'd experienced in the previous week or so. Uh, now, I didn't know that the uh, captain and the crew were dodging uh, torpedoes or in one way or another were uh, trying to get us safely to uh, Scotland. But uh, for us in that hold, uh, which was basically for baggage, uh, uh, we all dashed towards the ladder that would take us up to the first level of actual bunks and uh, passenger stuff. And just about the time we, the first of us got to the door, they slammed it <laughs> and shut us in to this forward hold of 400 uh, future soldiers. And how else could we interpret it but that uh, they uh, would sadly let us all drown uh, from the uh, torpedo attack uh, rather than risk that our hold would fill up with water and our ship would sink. So that was my introduction oh. to warfare. 
was that experience. And it lasted for, I don't know, an hour, two hours, something like that. It seemed like it was endless. But finally, they opened the uh, door to for next level. And we were right there. And we poured through that door and headed towards fresh air. And uh, uh, when we got up to the uh, promenade deck, I think it was, uh, they let us outside and we got information that in fact, those explosions and that sharp turn had been our uh, passenger ship dodging um, um, what torpedoes and uh, that they had successfully dodged the torpedoes oh. and that, and they had gotten anti-submarine submarine units uh, to arrive in over the water and attack the submarines. And so we were protected. And that was really my first major exposure to uh, the Second World War, mm. where somebody was trying to kill me. <laughs> uh, and I wasn't to take it personally, but I'd be just as dead at either way. <laughs> right. And, what a shock that must have been, I mean, as a young man to cross that. And that's your introduction. How yeah, much, well, how uh, much fear did you, you feel? When you a ship with 7,500 uh, fellow uh, future soldiers uh, in this, the, the torpedo warfare uh, was something that I had enough exposure to to see, I didn't want to die this way. Right. And uh, fortunately, I didn't have to. And one of the things that was a comfort to me, when we were crossing the Atlantic, I was up on the promenade dock uh, in the dark at night, uh, huddled up against uh, uh, a wall with a lot of other guys. Mm -hmm. And I had this uh, powerful experience uh, sitting there uh, and chatting with the guys right next to me. But uh, I heard a voice and the voice came from the other side of the deck. And uh, what the voice said was, there you shall survive. Mm. And, you know, I can't explain it. Nobody can explain these experiences. But boy, was it welcome to have <laughs> a voice from beyond right. telling me that I was not going to die in that boat. Uh, and uh, 
or ship, I should say. And uh, so anyway, uh, we survived uh, the last day uh, north of Ireland, getting into Glasgow, Scotland, uh, accompanied by two anti-submarine destroyers who kept us safe. And then um, I got a long ride along with my fellow replacements uh, on the train from Glasgow, Scotland, down to Southampton in England on the, uh, on the coast of Southern England. Uh, and the next step was to get on a ferry to go across the English Channel to France. But it was very foggy and uh, they kept informing us, we can't take you across the channel in this fog because we will not have a chance to identify where floating mines could blow up the ship. Mm. And uh, I thought that was uh, good, good uh, thinking on their part. <laughs> Very and good thinking, so yes. <laughs> we sat in Southampton for three or four days in the fog, and I remember uh, I competed with uh, my fellow soldiers for, there were no, no cots or beds or soft floors to sleep on. Uh, I managed, uh, I think on the third night, to commandeer a dinner table as a place to sleep. Mm -hmm. And that was quite an accomplishment. And I didn't, fortunately, I can sleep anywhere. <laughs> uh, and so uh, on the third or fourth day, uh, the weather cleared. We went across the channel. And this was in, uh, um, this was after, I think it was after Christmas of the uh, 44, just before 1945. Anyway, I had not been sleep, sleeping in comfort, but I am very grateful to the way I was created because I can sleep anywhere. <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, so when did you get there? When did you get to the front lines? Um, I mean, what was it like right after you got overseas and you got to the front lines with the American troops that were there? Uh, what was it like being shelled by the Germans? And, and, and how were you guys able to get through those difficult times? Okay, that's a good question. Thank you for I tend to get carried away with my storytelling. <laughs> That's right. uh, we got crammed onto trucks, mm. troop trucks, and we went to a distribution center where eventually we were assigned to a unit. And I was assigned to the 3rd Armored Division. 
of the first army, which was uh, at that moment fighting, oh, my memory isn't good, uh, uh, an early city in Germany. Um, and anyway, uh, by the time we got assigned and got crammed on it, troop trucks and headed east toward the fighting, uh, my third armored division, which was part of the first army headed by General Hodges, uh, had captured uh, uh, this western city and uh, we were headed toward Cologne, Germany. Mm -hmm. And uh, my first battle was in attacking Cologne. And uh, as we got near uh, where the front line was, and the front line was still west of the city, uh, uh, first, we heard uh, our American howitzers, our 50, 155 howitzers, sending uh, shells 15 miles uh, east onto the Germans. But before very long, we were in the middle of German shelling coming west. And uh, um, we would look at the back of our truck, and uh, after a while, we saw uh, um, what am I trying to think of? Trucks loading bodies mm -hmm. onto them uh, German bodies, American bodies, and uh, we had a couple of wounded veterans coming back from the hospital and they'd been there for a month or two. Mm -hmm. So they'd been in combat and uh, they were riding in the back of our truck. And they said to the rest of us, adolescents, I'm not the kind that uh, is bright and cheery in that situation. But these guys said, uh, as we looked out the back of the truck and saw all the bodies and, and the uh, uh, cemetery detail, uh, and they said to us, okay, boys, the magic is over. <laughs> And now it's for real. Right. It's a whole different story and when it's actually there. And you mentioned something that I thought when we talked earlier, when we were talking about um, your experiences, and you shared with me the other day that as an infantryman, you fought with your ears more than with your eyes. Could you explain yeah, just yeah, what, that, what you meant by you. that? This is a good time. Yeah, one of the things about fighting, maybe at every level, but certainly in the infantry, 
is you don't so much need sharp eyes as you need sharp ears because every time a shell comes your way you have to decide is it going to be close do i need to jump in a hole or is it going to be a couple of hundred yards away mm -hmm. and it will explode harmlessly as far as your life is concerned and that that became immediate knowledge and instinct uh, for me to uh, uh, deal with that. So I, you fight with your ears more than your eyes. Um, and uh, then uh, we got to our outfit uh, and we had a one day of ex mild exposure to get us accustomed to uh, uh, machine guns and rifles and small arms fire mm -hmm. uh, being shot our way, but still being protected. Uh, and then uh, we were in it. And uh, the uh, thing that I remember is being with another guy shortly thereafter, one or two days, no more, where he and I were each uh, behind the wheels of uh, um, German cars mm -hmm. that had been left. And, uh, you know, if you get right behind the wheels, uh, the bullets can't get you. <laughs> and so, well, you have we a... were there, but we couldn't see much. So we both rolled over toward each other. And uh, that apparently made us visible to a German machine gunner. Mm -hmm. And he pulled the trigger. And German machine guns could fire a thousand rounds in a minute. Unbelievable. That's a lot of rounds. And you spoke yeah. about when we talked earlier or uh, about a, uh, the, the, your hillbilly friend who got his mustache. Uh, your, the hillbilly in your oh, regiment, yeah, that yeah, funny yeah, story yeah. about I'll him. I'll tell a hillbilly story yeah. in a minute. But I just want to finish this. The machine gun bullets being fired at us, uh, I would say uh, my fellow soldier and I we're lying about uh, uh, four feet apart, maybe mm -hmm. three feet, four feet. And the machine gun bullets made a line in the dirt right between us. They couldn't, it couldn't have, um, it was measured perfectly. Wow. Uh, neither of us got hit, wow. but the machine gun bullets came right down between us and we rolled back over behind the cover of the wheels of the abandoned cars. So that was my first experience of a close call. Oh, wow. And it sure as hell was a close call. Uh, <clears throat> then, you know, we were 
being shelled regularly. And what was important was for your ears to tell you, was this German shell going to hit 50 yards away mm -hmm. or was it going to be 15, 20 yards away mm -hmm. where you had to get under cover and not be hit by the shrapnel. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was our second lesson. Um, and again, it was our ears, not our eyes. We couldn't see these shells, but we could hear them. And we survived to the extent that the shells were not going to drop on top of us, but we could uh, avoid them. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did. Uh, and uh, then another... Um, well, we have uh, a, a 10 minutes come left for the show uh, there. So I want to kind of get into when you came to the concentration camp because okay when you right. got to the concentration okay. camp it was so, one um, of the last living testaments of that horrors of that war if you could share right. your okay. experiences that would be uh, um, eventually after several days of fighting maybe a week or two even I'm not clear on time we captured this major concentration camp uh, which, as I remember, was outside of Wiesbaden, Germany. And it was uh, a place where when we went in the gates, you know, we saw at least 150 corpses wow. of uh, uh, prisoners that had starved to death. Uh, they didn't have to shoot them. They just worked them to death. And then all the guards in the camp had, had fled as the American army took over the camp. But uh, it was an enormous operation. Uh, there were thousands in this camp. And uh, it... Uh, uh, was something I, it's burned in my memory, the sight of it and the uh, incredible suffering. And our impulse was to grab our K rations and feed these starving people. But fortunately, uh, the medics arrived about that time and said, don't feed the prisoners. If you feed them, you kill them. And uh, so we, we, they fed them a nourishing broth yeah. for several days before they even thought of serving them solid food. So that was another uh, interesting experience. Uh, and, Thayer, uh, could you share when uh, you walked down the road there and the prisoner, uh, one of the prisoners had escaped and was walking up to you. And what he said, or what she oh, yeah. said, please, oh, could you oh, share oh, that? Thank you. Please. Thank you. Uh, 
I obviously need more than an hour. <laughs> you um, do. I wish we could do more. I do. But <laughs> and one of the first experiences I had before we got to the camp was I looked in front of me, and I don't know whether this was uh, in a German city. I think it was. And I saw this strange figure that wasn't in street clothes and he wasn't in German army uniform, but he was in some kind of uniform. And I raised my rifle because I didn't know. And I waited there until he was close enough. I could see he wasn't armed. Mm -hmm. And I dropped my, I put my rifle down and this man staggered up to me, literally just, staggered but he was one of the ones that had enough strength to stagger and to get out of a camp into this crowd in the city and he staggered up to me i was a lead scout for our unit that day and fell on his knees and kissed my feet and cried out freiheit 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 well, I knew German, and I knew what he was crying out was freedom, freedom, freedom. And it's still burned in my memory. And, uh, you know, one of the things I fought for was to be a free man in the U.S. And until recently, it didn't take much to believe in it, but it We've got this crazy guy who wants to control everything and not allow for freedom, but rather control. And uh, so... Um, Boy, as an 18, though, thank you for sharing that, um, Thayer. It's, uh, it's a testament to what's at the, uh, I think, is at the core of why veterans and, and military and warriors and, and why we do what we do is to give freedom. And when people have had their freedoms taken away, like what you witnessed and that prisoner of war coming out and, and falling at your feet and you know what it really means and you know all the other stuff is just dribble. And that's what it's about. And that must have had a profound, profound impact and influence on you and the way you would carry yourself the rest of your life. Yeah, just one more thing, I'll say it briefly. Sure. When you fight in the infantry, or I guess anywhere else, but in the infantry, you better have your wits about you. Yeah. I survived because of my wits. When I found myself bracketed by artillery, I knew that the next shell was going to land right on top of me. Mm -hmm. So I got the hell out of there. And so many things, your intelligence helps you to survive. When you got back from uh, uh, over being overseas and, and uh, after you... Uh, 1946, um, and you came back to the States, 
How long before you started to process some of the experiences that you had? A lot of times we associate World War II veterans not having experienced any kind of PTSD. You know, we seem to have this idea they 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 didn't because it was a just war. Um, Did any of your fellow World War II veterans experience those kinds of things? Well, I think, you know, I can't talk about fellow veterans. I mean, I saw while we were still in the war, two or three uh, of my fellow soldiers who were overwhelmed with anxiety and fear. And we had to send them back because they couldn't fight. Um, But um, I... I did a very good job when I when I came back within three weeks. I was a freshman at Amherst College, and I was busy being a student and dating, uh, which was one of the rewards of survival. And um, I I shut out the war. Yeah. To a large degree, I was, I just didn't think about it. I didn't go there. Uh, It wasn't until 1977 when I went out to Esalen uh, Institute on the West Coast and had a wonderful therapist in a group that I started having catastrophic dreams uh, one after another and uh, since I was a therapist I knew I had to take them seriously and the dreams brought up a PTSD trauma from right at the end of the war I was under German shelling that was so close to killing me that I, it's a miracle I survived, but that terrified me. I was taken over by terror. Well, um, uh, there it is. Uh, we've only got about a couple minutes left here. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your your wisdom, your experiences, your your story with us. And we have a lot of veterans and a lot of um, advocates of veterans, people who love them, people who. And what advice could you give someone who's listening, um, who's tuning in, who might be might be on the edge, who might be hurting and, and who's uh, who, who loves their country, but is their, their their traumas has been hurting them? What would you what would you recommend that they do? How can you what would you advise? It's a very good question. Uh, My simplest answer is you can fight effectively and be terrified. Mm -hmm. It's not a question of either or, but it's a question of both and. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I was uh, often scared uh, beyond belief, but I could function. And I was amazed that I could do that, but I could do it. Uh, 
So that, you know, that's an encouragement to any of you out there who are facing uh, close uh, warfare and uh, infantry combat. Well, it is. Um, I just want to thank you all for who are tuning in to the the council today for being with us, being with Thayer and I, sharing the remembrances of their sacrifices and the people who served in World War II and uh, all that Thayer has experienced and shared with us today. I want to thank KUHS TV Radio Denver. Thank you, Henry, and everybody here who makes this show possible. Without you, we couldn't do it. Uh, thank you for all that you do behind the scenes to make us connect to the world. Uh, tune in to KUHS TV Radio Denver. We are the stream, uh, and we are uh, touching hearts, reaching out to people all over this great country and all over the world. Thayer, before we close out the show today, I always ask, thank you, sir, so much for being here. My gosh, I, I wish we could talk. For, I hope like, that's what for, you were looking for. Absolutely, more than what I was looking for. It, it exceeded my expectations. Uh, um, I wish we could go on. And thank you for your service. Thank you for all that you uh, represent. Um, sir, if you could give, I always ask my guests this before we close out the show. If you could give one piece of advice, one bit of wisdom from your life experience, what would it be? You can fight and be afraid at the same time. <laughs> I think that's right in all life. We all have to confront our fears. Uh, whether we are veterans, whether we're warriors, whether we're people just trying to navigate through our life day to day, it's facing the fears that we come up and we can still have the will to fight, having the courage and the strength to endure and to face each and every day. And at the same time, we can be afraid. I mean, that's part of being human. Um, folks, we are about to close. Remember how, what a precious privilege it is to be alive when you wake up every morning in spite of all that may be going on around you. In spite of all the craziness and challenges, remember the goodness that is, exists within everybody. Uh, welcome them and see them as Americans. See them as human beings. See them as countrymen. And take a moment whenever you wake up in the morning to thank, thank whoever you pray to. Thank them for be giving you the, this precious, precious privilege to be alive, to breathe, to think, to enjoy, to engage, to love. Remember that as we go through these next few weeks. All right, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in to the council. The council is adjourned. May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. May you all be whole. God bless everyone. Thank you, Charlie. We'll see you next Thank time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you there. Goodbye, everyone. God bless. Was that okay? Yeah, you did good.